So hear the word of the Lord, Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 to 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We were at a social gathering at a friend's house. The wife, a Christian, the husband was not, but he was very friendly toward us. And we were at their home, and he had some of his friends there. And the topic of the faith came up. I'm not sure how that came up, but maybe we brought it up. I don't remember, but but maybe just in the introductions, this is the pastor or something like that. And, And there was one man who began to get sort of aggressive and uh, critical. And and Sandy turned to him and said, well, when you think of the church, what do you think of? And he shot back immediately, and he said, money. And I wish I had been clever enough and quick enough to give the answer that I thought about later. And that's this. Oh, thank you so much for recognizing that. Thank you so much for recognizing that there is no organization, no institution on the face of the planet that gives away more of its own money to help people than the church. That's what I should have said, but I didn't. But I thought of that answer later. Now, if that man had attended our church down in Guadalajara, Mexico, I'm afraid he would have had the opposite impression. And that is, he would think that we didn't care anything about money because somewhere along the way... I developed a real reticence to preach about money. I'm not sure how that happened, but it's one of those topics that I don't like to preach about. But one of the advantages of preaching like I do, taking books of the Bible and preaching through them, every once in a while, guess what I have to preach about? Whether it's my favorite topic or not, I need to preach about it if it comes up. And that's a good thing. One of my elders actually took me to task a little bit and told me that I need to preach about money more. How many preachers get told that? He said, I need to preach about money more, and he's probably right, but now I have the opportunity and the responsibility to do so. And it's a good thing, I say, because because it is a good barometer. There are few things that indicate the condition of our hearts more than how we approach the question and use our money. So, this is another dispute. If you've been following along in this series, it goes like this. God comes along and He says something. Sometimes it's positive, usually it's negative. 
He starts out the first one positive by saying, I love you all. And then after he says something about the condition of the people, usually it's an accusation. The people, as it were, put their hands on their hips and say, oh yeah? How, how, how How do you say that about us? And they challenge God. And then God explains, and then he describes through Malachi the proper response to him. Now here we have a double challenge. We have a declaration, a challenge, an explanation, which is another declaration, and another challenge. So they challenge God twice here. And the initial declaration is that they are not consumed because God does not change. And that's an interesting declaration. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. They were, they were not happy with their condition. They were looking around and saying, why is our condition as bad as it is? Why, why do other people have it better than we do? And this initial verse says, you still are alive, folks. You have not yet been consumed. And the reason you've not been consumed is because I, the Lord, do not change. Now, how does that work? A couple of different ways. There are are promises that God gave to Israel that were unconditional promises. And God fulfilled those promises regardless of how the people behaved. And that's one of the reasons they were not consumed, because God is faithful to His promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to His covenant with them. But in addition to that, God gave, particularly in Deuteronomy, some conditional promises as well, depending on how the people behaved. If they behaved this way, they got this. If they behave another way, they got that. And so God is pointing out, I don't change. So if you don't like the things you're receiving, don't blame me. I've already laid out the conditions for you to receive what you want. And if you're not receiving them, don't look at me like I've changed. The problem is elsewhere. And so he calls them to return to him. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That's the call. Return to me. You've turned aside. Not just you, but your fathers as well. And read the Old Testament. What do you find there? You find an almost continuing tendency to do what? to turn away from God, to turn away from God. And then he sends the prophets, and the prophets, a number of them, preach this. Return to God. Return to God. And here's a conditional. If you will turn to God, He will turn back in favor to you. This is a call in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, in Joel, in Amos, and in Zechariah. This is one of the favorite themes of the, of the prophets. Return to God, and He will return to you. And we also find that, if we are correct about our, our, our dating of Malachi, that it was right before Ezra and Nehemiah came back and instituted their reforms of the priesthood and of the temple worship, if we're correct in that, then we find that this dovetails very well with with the beginning of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 9. The same message, return to the Lord. And think about this. What What are relationships? What are good relationships? How do we enjoy relationships, any sort of relationships? What do we do? We turn toward each other. 
That's how relationships function. And so God is inviting them to to enter back into a a good relationship with Him. That's what people have to do to have good relationships with each other and with the Lord, to return to. Now, this expression doesn't appear in the New Testament. And this is interesting. It's a little bit different expression that we find in Acts of the Apostles. Here in the Old Testament, the message is, return to God. And in the New Testament, it's turn to God. And you'll find this sprinkled throughout uh, Acts of the Apostles, that the, the people turn to the Lord. Now, what's the difference between returning and turning? Returning assumes that you were there in the first place, doesn't it? And that's how it was in the Old Testament. Israel was there in the first place. There was a relationship with God in the first place. That's why they had to return to God. But that's not how our situation was. We didn't start this life in that sort of privileged position that Israel had. Now, many did, actually. Many grew up in Christian families, and that's, that's a great blessing. But in general, the nations, the Gentiles, we did not have that favorable position before God. And so, we, we can't return to God. What do we need to do? We need to turn to the Lord. And that's, that's an image of repentance. And these twin, twin activities of turning to the Lord and believing in Jesus, that's how we enter into a relationship with our God. Now, what do they do? What do they do? He says, return to me, and I will return to you. And at the end of verse 7, what do they do? They said, how shall we return? Now, what do they mean by that? How shall we return if we never left? We don't have any need to return to you because we never turned aside in the first place. So that's the first declaration and challenge by the people. And so, patiently, God clarifies in verse 8. And he asks a question, an absurd question, an unheard of sort of question. Will man rob God? An absurd sort of notion that that a human could, could rob God. But he says, but actually that's what's happening. This absurd sort of idea, this this unheard of idea. But you are robbing me. So here he clarifies. They need to return to him. And one of the ways in which they need to return to him is stop robbing him. And so what do they do? Once again they say, oh yeah? How have we robbed you? So here's the double declaration, the double challenge. And then God responds with two words. Tithes. Contributions. Tithes, contributions, the end of verse 8. Or tithes and offerings. Now, what were these? Tithes, that word in English means 10%. A tenth. And if you go into the Old Testament law, you find that the Israelites were required to give 10% of their income, of their proceeds, which would have been principally agriculture and animal proceeds. And you will find that in Leviticus 27:30, Numbers 18:24 and 28, Deuteronomy 14:28 and 29, you will find the uses to which the tithe was put. It did a couple of things. The tithe went to the Levites and then they gave a tithe of that to a section of their own tribe which were the priests. So One of the twelve tribes 
was sustained by all the other tribes. And so all the other tribes had to give this 10% to, to sustain the Levites and the priests so that the worship could take place. And then, in addition, that was a constant thing, in addition there was an occasional tithe, and it's not clear how many tithes there were necessarily, but the tithe was also used to take care of the poor among the people of Israel. So those were the purposes. Now think about this. This is very expensive worship, isn't it? For for 11 tribes to take care of one whole tribe, by taking a tenth of their income to sustain the worship. It was very costly worship, but they were required to do that. Now, during the exile, during the exile, they didn't have a way to do that. Why not? Well, they didn't have a temple, and so they didn't have the Levites being active, and they didn't have the priests offering sacrifices. So for 70 years, they got out of the habit of sustaining the temple and the priesthood. Now they're back in the land, and they don't have this habit anymore. But it's not just then, because God says, actually, this is from way back. You have not done this. So those are the tithes. And the offerings or the contributions were a number of other contributions and offerings that were required in the law. Some voluntary, some were required. But there were those above and beyond the 10% that were also part of their worship and their service. And so after the exile, he says, the whole nation, if you look at verse 9, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So the whole nation, this was not an isolated thing. The whole nation was holding back, especially on this tenth part. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because what did we see at the beginning of Malachi? That the priests were corrupting their ministry, and the Levites were corrupting their ministry in order to get more food. And now we have a clue as to why they would be tempted to do that. They were tempted, apparently, if we can put these things together to corrupt their own ministry because the people were not providing for them. So it was a vicious cycle. Now, it also explains why the finances were so bad in Israel. That's what he says. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he gets to the proper response in verse 10. And the proper response is very clear. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. The full tithe. Now, we need to ask the question, food for whom? Because in pagan thinking, it was to feed the gods. That the gods were strong, but they, we, had a, we had our trump card with them that we had to feed them. And so that's what the offerings were in paganism. But here, it's not like that. Here, it's not so God can eat, it's so the Levites can eat, and the priests, and so that they can lead the worship of God. Now, the immediate result would be there would be food in the house, and then the the later result would be that God would prosper the people. Prosper the people. And here he says, interestingly, Thereby put me to the test, in, in verse, verse 10 still. Thereby put me to the test. This is unusual, isn't it? Because we hear oftentimes in the Old Testament, don't put God to the test. But here we're able to, it says, because he's asking us to do this. Put, 
me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer. And who's the devourer? Pests. Agricultural society. These were, these were pests that would eat up the crops. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So you will have rain and you will not have pests. The two things that, that you need for agriculture. You need the rain and you need to, uh, something to, to, to kill off or avoid the pests. And then the further result would be, all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So this is going to get bigger and bigger. This is going to be not only that you as a nation will have abundant crops, but you will have a good reputation among other nations. And all nations will once again say, these are the people of the Lord. These are the blessed people of the Lord. Now, so far the text in its context, but there's a challenge here in taking this text and knowing how it applies to us today in the New Testament. And there's some differences of opinion about this text. And that is how much of it carries over to our situation today. Now, there are some Christians who consider the tithe to be a Christian obligation, that this is an obligation in the New Testament that all Christians should do. And then some of those also think that God is bound, God is bound to prosper Christians individually and financially, and financially, um, because they tithe to God to the, the worship of God. Now, um, the, the, the worst manifestation of this uh, is the so-called prosperity gospel, where it is this sort of quid pro quo, this for that, you do this, and then God is obligated to do that for you. And I have to say that there are some people that get wealthy that way, the preachers who preach that. But that makes it very suspicious. If the main beneficiaries of this theology are those who preach it, that is very, very suspicious. Now, not all who believe in the tithe believe like that. I'm taking it to the extreme to which we have taken it in the United States and, unfortunately, exported to the rest of the world. So you will find this this errant theology all over the world. But, but many sincere biblical Christians saying the tithe is a Christian obligation. So let's try to evaluate that. And follow me here. Much of this text, much of this text was specific to Malachi's day. It was addressed to the sons of Israel, and it was based on commandments related to the temple and the priesthood, both of which no longer exist. So the tithe was specifically tied in the Old Testament to the temple and to the Levites and the priesthood. And those no longer exist. They have been destroyed. So, um, another thing is, these promises, and this is where the prosperity gospel goes wrong, these promises in the original context were national promises. They were not individual promises. They were promises to the nation of Israel. And finally, um, they were material and agricultural blessings that were promised here. That is, we'll take care of the pests, or I will take care of the pests, and I will send rain. Those were the promises, and the produce of that would be food in the granaries. 
When we get to the New Testament, there are four references to the tithe in the New Testament. Four and four only. It refers to Abraham paying the tithe to Melchizedek. It refers to Zacchaeus when he had repented. He was paying, he says, Lord, I pay the tithe of all that I get. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you pay the tithe, good job, but you're ignoring bigger things. So he recognized that it was good that they paid the tithe, and uh, but they were ignoring the bigger matters of justice and mercy and love of God. So when we look at those four instances, they were instances, in the case of Abraham, long, long ago, before there was a priesthood, except for Melchizedek, who this priest who showed up, And then the other three examples are examples when the priesthood was still operating and when the temple was still standing. And then when we get to instruction about giving in the New Testament, there is ample instruction about giving in the New Testament which never mentions the tithe. Now, that's an argument from silence and we need to be careful about that. But it is at least curious that if they had a ready-made system of giving to apply in the New Testament that it's never mentioned by Jesus or by any of the apostles. And so, um, so I conclude that tithing is not an obligation that we find in the New Testament. Now, before you breathe a sigh of relief or take me to task because you think I'm playing fast and loose with the Scripture, let me hasten to add this. There is much that the New Testament has in common with the Old Testament in terms of principles of giving. And if we follow those New Testament principles of giving, they are, if anything, more demanding than the simple tithe. They look for something much greater than simply moving the decimal point and paying 10%. They look for heart generosity. And we're going to see that. What what do the Old Testament and the New Testament have in common in terms of giving? Both of them emphasize that God is the owner of absolutely everything. And that everything we have is a gift from Him, no matter how it comes to us. The other thing they both emphasize, our giving reveals where our hearts are and how much we recognize God's authority over our lives and how much we love God. And three, we should give in proportion to our income. That's repeated in the New Testament, that we should give proportional to what we earn. And that's what the tithe was. It was proportional. And in addition, in the New Testament, we find that God prospers the generous believer. So that carries over as well. Now, what are the differences? And these differences, I think, are significant. Differences in the New Testament, it mentions proportionality, which would indicate a percentage, but it doesn't say what that percentage is. It doesn't say that percentage. In the Old Testament, it's clear, 10%. But in the New Testament, we don't find that that percentage named. And so, if we have, let's say, a, a person in our church who is, is desperately poor, it may be 
that that person should not pay 10% of his or her meager income. But on the other hand, those who are comfortable and wealthy ought not to be content and congratulate themselves because they give a mere 10% which they do not feel at all in their lifestyle. In addition, the New Testament emphasizes something bigger than material blessings. And we read in the New Testament in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 6 to 12, we read this earlier in the service. And the same principle here, you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly, uh, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. And then he gives some principles about how we should give. Give as you've decided in your own heart, not, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. And for God, and God is able to make what abound to you? All grace abound to you. So that having all sufficiency in all times, in all things, you may abound in every good work. You see, this includes financial provisions, certainly, but you see, this goes beyond that. This is not just a promise that you give money, you get money back. No, you give money and you get something even bigger back. And if we read this text, what kind of things do you get back? You get back the opportunity to do good works. Amazing that you can take money and you can do good works with that money. He's distributed freely, is given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. How about that? Invest money, little pieces of almost worthless metal and paper, and you get righteousness that increases. What kind of an investment is that? What a return is that? And we keep reading. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Amazing! You can take your pennies and you can give them and your dollars or your tens of thousands of dollars and people will give thanks to God for you. What a return on your investment! That's remarkable! I'd love to have all of my investments return so much more than than I put in. The ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Amazing! We can take our money and invest it, and the result will be the glory of God? How's that for a return? How's that for a level of interest? And the, is they glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. People will really know that you're a Christian if you give your money and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you. Wait, we can give money and then people will pray for us? They'll give thanks for us and they'll say you're really Christians and they will pray for us in return? That is a, that is a return on investment for sure. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So God's surpassing grace can be evident to us just because we take some of, some of our income and give it away. Do you see how this works? Yes, there is financial provision included here. You will have what you need to be generous. You will have what you need to do good work. So there is financial provision. But you see how this goes way beyond that? Not just grain in, in the, the storehouse. But thanksgiving to God, glory of God, uh, prayers from others, and a, a real testimony before others. Now, um, 
Also in the New Testament, we find this. There's no more temple, except that we are the temple, the the church, but there is no more physical temple. And there is no more priesthood, except that we're all, we all have a, a priestly function. And so there is no more priesthood or temple to sustain. So what does the say, the New Testament say to what we should give? And it has three things. One is the local church. Another is missions to other places around the world that don't have the gospel. And the third is the poor among us. So those are the three foci of our giving. The local church, uh, missions, and the poor among us. Now, think about this. The local church is, or at least should be, much cheaper than to sustain the temple in the Levites. Think about that. They had to give, they had to take care of, of uh, a whole tribe, one twelfth of the whole nation. Do we, do we as Christian church, do we have to pay one twelfth of our membership? Does, do eleven twelfths have to pay for one twelfth of the membership? No. There are a few people that get paid uh, through the offerings of the church, but, but relatively few. We don't have this monstrous structure that we have to maintain. We don't have all the animals. We don't have all, all this apparatus of worship. If we have New Testament worship as it's described in the, in the, in the New Testament, then it's simple and it's not that expensive. And so what's that mean? We should have much more money to invest into missions to get the gospel to other people. And so if we will, if we will keep our expenses down, then we will free up much money to take the gospel to those who have not yet heard. Now, how are we doing? How are we doing? Um, as Christians in the United States, here's some statistics. Now, there are different numbers out there, but they tend to, they tend to correspond. Christians are giving in the United States at about 2.5% of their income. 2.5. So a quarter of the tenth. Of the tithe. Only three to five percent of Americans who give to their local church do so by regular tithing. Three to five percent. For families making seventy-five thousand dollars or more, one percent. One percent of them give at least ten percent in tithing. And thirty-seven percent of regular church attendees, and this, this includes evangelicals, who we say we take the Bible seriously, don't give anything to their church. Nothing. Now, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. 77% of those who tithe actually give more than 10%. They give between 11 and 20% of their income. And 70% of the tithers, sorry for all these numbers, but I hope that they're making the impression, 70% of tithers do so based on their gross and not their net income. So what's this indicate? It indicates that there are a large number of Christians out there that are holding back, that aren't even getting close to the Old Testament standard, let alone entering into the radical generosity of the New Testament. They're holding back in their giving. But there are a blessed few who have figured out the blessing of giving 10%, and when they figure that blessing out, what do they say? How can I give more? You see, you see, when we hear this message, we ought not to be saying, how much do I have to give? We ought to be saying, 
How much can I give? How much can I give? And when people ask me, do you believe in the tithe? And as you've said, or as I've already said, I've already said that I don't think it is a specific obligation of the New Testament. But when people ask me, do you believe in the tithe? I say, no, and at least... So, something's happened here, folks, between the Old Testament and now. Something has happened. Yes, something has happened to take away the temple, and to take away the priesthood, and to take away this apparatus of worship, and to put something else in its place. But that something that happened is that God demonstrate how generous He really is. We saw something of His generosity in the Old Testament, didn't we? But it comes into the fore. And we see the maximum expression of God's generosity in the New Testament when He sends His only Son, and His only Son gives His life. He didn't give 10% for us. He gave His only Son. He gave 100% of His Son. And His Son didn't hold back from us either. The Son gave 100% of Himself as well so that we might have life. And so that's why... That's why when Paul is writing, go back and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And look how when Paul's talking about money, then all of a sudden he interjects something else. And that something else is a reflection on Jesus. He says, you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he made himself poor for us so that we through his poverty might become rich. And how does he end this whole discussion in chapters 8 and 9? He ends it with praise and thanks to God. He talks about how to give. He talks about principles. And then he ends up saying, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. So, if you want to learn about giving, don't start by thinking about money. Start by thinking about Jesus. Don't don't start with money. Because money is, is apt to, to get us all confused and, and we're all tempted in some way or another with money. Don't start with money. Start with Jesus. We're the whole realm. We sang it earlier, didn't we? We're the whole realm of nature mine that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that You gave Your Son. We thank You that He gave Himself. And we pray, O God, that You would give us faith in the Savior so that we might have life. And then, all that You've given us, it's all Yours. I pray that You would enable us to be good stewards, managers of what You've given us. And to learn in the light of your overwhelming, extravagant generosity to be generous Christians so that people would give thanks to you, people would glorify you, people would see the reality of our faith, and so that the gospel would go forth and the needs of the saints would be taken care of. Lord, teach us to give by teaching us first about Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.